Father, we do thank you. You are the father of life, not just physical life, Lord, but, but spiritual life, that you um, give eternal life through your son to any who would place their trust in him, commit to follow him. We thank you that he, Lord, has given himself for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, to sacrifice that you sacrificed yourself when you didn't have to, that you follow the Father's will out of love for us, and we are grateful. We pray, Lord, now that your word would move us to us love and serve you more out of gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as many of you know, I lived in Idaho for a number of years, and, uh, you know, Idaho is known not only for its potatoes, but it's also known as a place for great fishing. Uh, one of the cool things that uh, I learned when I was up in Idaho was this thing called the salmon run. Now, you see, salmon, they hatch in the freshwater streams, not only Idaho, but uh, around the northwest and other places in the world. But what's interesting about them is that after they've hatched and spent a few months to maybe a couple of years, they migrate to the Pacific Ocean, in the case of those up in Idaho. They swim through the freshwater streams to get to uh, the saltwater, the Pacific. And along the way, God has designed these creatures that their body chemistry changes so that they're able to adapt to saltwater. And what's interesting is then they, they end up living most of the rest of their lives within the Pacific, some of them swimming huge distances and gathering food and, and in living there. And while that migration is indeed fascinating and that transformation, what to me is even more amazing is the fact that those salmon, after a period of time in the ocean, they instinctively turn around and they swim back up the rivers and streams to the very place where they respond. They're able to find their birthplace, and that is where they then hatch their eggs and fertilize them. For example, the redfish lake sockeye travels over 900 miles in distance, 6,500 feet in elevation to get back to where it was born. Unless, of course, you're Don Berg and have caught one of them. That guy doesn't make it back. But other than, than those fish that get caught, they travel all the way back upstream now, some scientists who've done studies on this think it may be because they have a sensitivity to uh, the magnetic field of the earth, and so that gives them direction, or they seem to also have a high uh, sense of smell and can tell the difference between various lakes and streams. But whatever the mechanism, I find this extraordinary. You think about a fish, a fish able to swim all the way back through the maze of rivers to find the place where it began. Incredible. God's creation is just amazing, isn't it? And the salmon run, it came to my mind this morning because this week as I was studying our passage in Ephesians 4, I thought of how the Christian life can be much like that salmon run. That often a Christian will have this pull and this, this pressure to go back to where they begin, to go back to their old life, to go back to the sins from which they came. It's uh, like, a, you know, I've experienced that in my own life, that draw, that enticement, the temptation. And sometimes I've mightily struggled against it, against going back to who I used to be and the, the sins that I once was enslaved to, the temptations that were a draw to me. Maybe some of you are experiencing that now. You're like that salmon spawning ground calling out to you to come back to go back to where you came from. And that, that call that promises relief and comfort, escape, happiness, your old sins. 
Paul described that struggle in his own life, didn't he, in Romans 7? He said there that, For the good I want to do, I don't do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. Oh, wretched man that I am. He was frustrated and struggled with it. And that's the story of many a saint, isn't it? At times we find ourselves wandering right back up that stream to the place where we came from. Just this week I was talking to a brother in the Lord and he just said in frustration, When will I stop sinning? And I I wish I could have answered him. It's a death, it's a rapture. But I think, you know, that's the cry of every believer. They're burdened by their sin and those temptations, the sins of the past that sometimes just don't seem to go away. It's, it's discouraging. It's defeating. Sometimes we just give up. It's so hard. The power of the flesh seems so strong. Well, the passage we have this morning in Ephesians 4 is good news because it is there that Paul gives us a way to dam up the river, the streams that take us back to where we started. So turn to Ephesians 4 with me, where we're going to see the second of the walk commands given in chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians. This this walk command continues the call to believers to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. I'm going to be reading from a little differently this morning from the English Standard uh, Version because th- that translation actually offers a little bit more uh, clear translation of the text. So please stand with me as we read from Ephesians 4. I'll be reading from starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thank you. You may be seated. Now here we see a a worthy walk is to walk in holiness. And we're called to walk in holiness in two ways. Here by first rejecting who we were And secondly, remembering who we are. Let's first look at, in verses 19, the the verses which tell us to reject who we were. Note here the main statement in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Paul's emphatic in this command. The word testify there is really, it's a stronger word. It means to affirm or to insist. And then Paul adds there, in the Lord, to give even more authority to the statement, he's, he's saying strongly that, hey, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. And we remember there that walk refers to what? When we see walk here in Ephesians and in the Bible as a whole, it means your life, right? Your lifestyle, how you live, your behavior, how you conduct yourselves. And he says here, don't walk or live like the Gentiles. And now Gentile does often refer to the ethnic, in the ethnic sense, the non-Jew. But also the Bible uses that term, the same word, ethne or Gentile, in order to refer to one who doesn't know Christ. Uh, we might call him a believer or, or a pagan or the ungodly. First Thessalonians 4, 5, 
Paul said to have control over one's body, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, he didn't mean there that every non-Jew doesn't know God. What he meant there is he's talking about a spiritually speaking. There's a group who are unbelievers who are uh, called Gentiles. Paul isn't saying here in Ephesians 4 that he's not telling them, hey, don't be a Gentile anymore in the ethnic sense. He's saying don't act like those who do not know God, who are unregenerate, unbelievers. And at this point, I think it's, it's important to ask the question, well, if he's speaking to Christians here, we know Ephesians is written to Christians, right? Early on, he calls them saints. If it's written to Christians here, why does he have this command here? Why, need, why does he need to give it to not walk in our old ways, in our old path as an unbeliever? Why would he be telling believers not to live like pagan unbelievers? Well, simply put, Paul tells us not to walk in our old pagan ways because we have the capacity to do so. Because believers do sin. Even though we've been saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Christ, Christians can sin. Just like Paul talked about in Romans 7 or 1 John 1, 8. If we, that is believers, say that we have, present tense, no sin... We're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. In fact, who are all the epistles written to? Primarily believers, right? And yet in every epistle, we have these commands, some of them many commands of things that we're not to do and things that we are to do. The call to live holy lives. That's because as believers, we all struggle with various sins. We are all prone to swim back to our old stream of sin. Christians do sin. And sometimes in pretty unimaginable ways. This doesn't mean that, uh, that you use yourself, lose your salvation if you have sinned. If you're truly a believer, God will not let you go. But if you are a Christian, you're not going to be content to stay there. Psalm 32 talks about the, the true believer struggling in sin. It, it has an effect, a guilt of that sin. Uh, it affects you physically. It affects your soul person who is in sin who's a Christian isn't content to stay there, and they will try to work and find a way out. They will not be at rest. And that way out begins with what? What is the first thing as we struggle in sin? What's the first thing God calls us to do? Confession, right? To confess. That's part of the repentance process. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the way out doesn't end there. Confession's the beginning. And Ephesians 4 describes his instruction from Paul where that the rest of the way out comes from. Again, in verse 17, Paul says, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's the beginning, to reject who you were. But notice here that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply say, hey, don't live like you used to. Stop sinning and then move on. But Paul actually gives a description. He gives several phrases here which characterize the unbeliever. He did this before in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where he didn't just say we were dead in trespasses and sins, but he went on to describe in detail the state of the person who does not know Christ. He did the same thing in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. And again here in verse 17, he, he goes through this detailed description. And he begins with the statement that someone who doesn't know Christ is someone who walks in the futility of their mind. Futility here means emptiness, purposelessness. Say that ten times fast. Having no point. 
He's describing here a person who's the futility of their mind. That doesn't mean a person that, that doesn't know Christ isn't able to think or, or reason or have logic. But what it means is that they're using the mind for no useful purpose. Because why did God create our minds? Just to in, have facts and data and information? And No, He created our minds so that we could interact with Him. So that we can understand and know Him. So that He could communicate with us and us to Him. And what Paul is saying here is that those who don't know Christ are not using their minds for which God has created them. They're using them for no purpose. Like taking a beautiful and precious statue, a valuable statue, and putting it in the garage, using it as a doorstop. That's the idea here. Verse 18 further pushes the point saying that they are darkened in their understanding. Darkness here is a, a moral Spiritual darkness that he's talking about. No capacity to know or embrace spiritual truth. The filament in their light bulb is broken. Understanding here parallels the Old Testament idea of the heart. The the center of a person, their will, their perception. Unbelievers are incapable of seeing what God desires or to want to live it out. And Paul says here, being darkened, he uses what's called a perfect tense in Greek, which is a tense that means it's something that's happened in the past with a focus on the continuing impact in the present. He's describing here and emphasizes that their current state is one of being darkened. And he actually adds another verb uh, that you can't see here in the English translation, the verb to be, to form what scholars like to call a paraphrastic participle construction. That's just a fancy way to say they're stuck there. They're stuck in that current state. That's the perpetual description of where the person who doesn't know Christ is at. The unbeliever is in darkness. And that what makes it so scary is this state of blindness is not something that they can escape on their own. One commentator said, This darkening is far worse than physical blindness, for the man who is physically blind knows it and admits it. But the person who is spiritually and morally darkened is blind even to the fact that he is blind. And Paul doesn't stop there. He adds in verse 18 that the unbeliever is also in a continuing state of exclusion or alienation from the life of God. Verb tense there is again in the perfect. Again, it's a a continual present state that they are in. Life here is spiritual life. One of the songs we sang had that phrase, the life of God. You remember in John 17, 3, how did Jesus define eternal life? To know Him, right? And the one whom He has sent. A relationship with God. But without Christ, they are excluded from the life of God, excluded from that relationship, remaining dead in trespasses and sins. There's no connection with God, no relationship with Him. Like corpses in a spiritual cemetery. No ability to communicate, to move. They cannot feel anything in regards to God. To God. Right? If you go up to a seminary and you show up there, you don't hear people talking to one another from the ground, do you? If you do, you better go see someone. But right there, they're dead. They're gone. They've passed away. Their bodies have. And here Paul describes it that way. There's no life of God, no spiritual life. Now, why is the unbeliever characterized this way? Why does Paul say that those who don't know Christ are uh, the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God? Is it because of the fact that something external to them? Is it because they weren't born in the right family? Because they didn't know truth or or that they grew up in a difficult environment? 
And the answer is given in the rest of verse 18. Paul says there that they are in this state because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They're ignorant of the things of God, not because they haven't heard the right message, not because they haven't read the right books, but that ignorance is a willful ignorance. It's a a conscious desire not to know God. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 1 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Listen, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. It's internal. There's an internal understanding and knowledge that God exists. Paul goes on to say, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Paul there is describing, he has given every person on this planet internal and, ex- internal and external evidence of himself. That God has made it evident within them that he exists. And he has made it evident to them and clearly seen through what he has made, right? There are no atheists. Or the Bible's wrong. There are no people on this planet who do not know that God does exist. Because God has made it evident within them and also shown it through his creation. But the unbeliever, and we all were this way before Christ showed mercy. The unbeliever looks at creation. The unbeliever looks at and feels that internal evidence within their heart and does what with it? Text says here, suppresses it, ignores it, does away with it, explains it away, says there is no God, or recreates God in the way that they want, or, or takes the cheater's way out and says, well, I'm not sure if there's a God. And why do they do that? Romans 1 says, so this to sin. I acknowledge a creator, I acknowledge that I am under somebody, then I have to obey them, and I don't want to do that. I want to obey me. And that's why Ephesians 4.18 says that this willful ignorance comes from a hardened heart. A heart that's unwilling and undesired to follow God. And because of that, they then are ignorant of God. Hardness here is a word that is, describes the calcification uh, that forms around a broken bone. It's a very hard substance. A hardened heart is one that's stubbornly insensitive to the things of God. Remember the parable of the sower, right? And what was the soil that some of the seed got scattered on and fell upon at the beginning? The hard soil, right? And it was so hard that the seed couldn't penetrate. And that's the person that doesn't even care when they hear about the word. Doesn't want to have any interest in it at all. And so Satan is able to pluck away that seed without problem. A hardened heart, though, is not a morally inactive heart. Actually, here we see in verse 19 that a hardened heart is very active. Paul says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Paul's saying here ultimately that a person who doesn't know Christ, a person who doesn't believe in Him, has no moral sensitivity. They freely give themselves to sensuality, to the pleasure of the senses. We would call it hedonism. Word that means no moral restraints. Feeding the glands in unbridled self-indulgence. No boundaries to the sensual appetites. That's seen in the last phrase where he says, "...they greedy to practice every kind of impurity." Every kind of immorality, every kind of wickedness. That word impurity there uh, uh, does talk about sexual sin, but not just that. It's referring to every form 
of wicked behavior. Paul here is is painting a, a pretty graphic picture, isn't he? He's talking about the person who doesn't know Christ is a person that gives themselves over to whatever they want, whatever they desire, whatever their body craves. Paul uses the word greedy here to say that craving is never satisfied or quenched. The hardened heart never says enough, but it says, I want more. It's the height of self-worship. And the Ephesians here, as they would hear this being read to them, this wouldn't be something that they were unfamiliar with. If you remember in Ephesus, uh, they had uh, built a temple to the goddess Diana. It was a center of worship for that goddess. In fact, that that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a, uh, during the worship services, so to speak, within that temple was drunkenness, debauchery, orgies, all kinds of immoral behavior. In fact, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who was born a few hundred years before in Ephesus, described the temple worship in this way. He said, The darkness to the approach of the altar was the darkness of vileness. The morals of the temple are worse than the morals of animals. The inhabitants of Ephesus are fit only to be drowned. That's what he thought of the situation. As he described the the darkness was inside the temple, it wasn't just a physical darkness, but it was a darkness of vileness. Here's a guy who didn't even know God, and he was repulsed by the behavior that took place there. It seems our culture is not too far behind, is it? I mean, the things that we hear about, the things that we see. Now, some may say, well, you know, I know some people like that, but, but you know, I don't see that all around me. I was never that way where I just gave in to everything and had these unbridled passions that I didn't suppress. Listen, you know why the world... You know why everybody in the world who doesn't know Christ doesn't plunge themselves completely to give in to their sensuality? Do you know why that is? Because God restrains them. Because God holds them back. There's a clear example of this in Genesis 20. Abraham got into this pattern where he'd lie about his wife, right? And say, oh, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Uh, He was half true. She was a half sister. But he would indicate, you know, to those when he'd go in place, he'd say, you know, she's not my wife because he's afraid for his life that they'd kill him and take her. Well, King Abimelech ended up taking Sarah to be his wife because of Abraham's lie. And God came to Abimelech in a dream and he said, buddy, you're a dead man because you took a married woman. And Abimelech said, well, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't do anything. And God said, yeah, that's right. Listen to what his reply was to Abimelech. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God restrained him. God kept him from pursuing what would have been a sinful behavior. Brothers and sisters, it's only by the grace of God that we don't see a world that is completely given over. Only because he is kind to us does he restrain what could be at times, though, he does allow for and pulls back that restraint. We've seen many examples in history of some awful, wicked things that have been done, unimaginable sins and immorality and wickedness. That shows us the capacity for man's evil and shows us that this text is indeed true. This description in verses 17 to 19 shows that a person who is without Christ is in a desperate state. And I know that there are likely some here this morning who do not know Jesus, that this is you that God is describing. 
Your heart has been hardened to the things of God. The Bible's boring. Christianity is unappealing. You don't want to submit yourself to God ultimately. You'll put up with a few rules maybe or, or do a few religious activities. But this idea of submitting yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Friends, do you see in these verses what a terrible place you're in? Do you see here how Paul has described you? You may feel free to do whatever you want, but you know what? You're really enslaved. Yeah, you'll tolerate things, but you're really apart from the life of God. Jesus stands ready to forgive. We sung about that. We took communion this morning. That's a reminder that Jesus has offered to free you from that hardness, to chisel that hardness away, to soften your heart so that you can understand the things of God, so that darkness would be lifted, so that what He created you to be and to do, you would fulfill, and you would find ultimate satisfaction and joy in that. That's what God has designed you to do and to be. Ask God now to to lift that darkness from you. If you're listening to me and you could care less and at least do this, say, God, if what he's saying is true, open my eyes. Help me to see. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to give you new life in Christ. Because listen, sin is only temporary in the happiness that it brings. I know from experience this. The things that I have done brought joy only for a short time and mostly brought misery. (laughs) But Jesus promises a, a lasting comfort and peace and forgiveness. But if you reject him now, that hardened heart, you're only adding another layer of cement around it. And at some point in time, there'll be so much cement there that it will be impenetrable, even for the gospel. A continued rejection of the truth. At some point, God then says, okay, that's it. Trust now in Jesus who died so that you might live. Who died so that you might know him. Now, as we take a step back from the text and look at these verses, we have to ask ourselves again the question, why? Why does Paul go into all of this? Why not simply say, don't walk like you used to walk as an unbeliever? And then move on. Why does he give these several descriptions, these details of the state of the ungodly person in these verses? I think it's a message to the believer here. He's saying, do you remember what you were like? Do you remember who you used to be? Rock, do you remember who you used to be? How about you, Bob? Do you remember? That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Remember, think about it. Consider what that life was like. Do you realize and recognize, remember, how much you were given over to your own lusts? Why go back there? Why swim upstream and live that life over again? Why would you want to do that, is the idea here. How could that be satisfying? That life was dark. It was isolated. It was hopeless. It was under God's wrath. Selfish, futile, wicked, lost. You know, once that salmon goes back upstream and lays its eggs, do you know what happens to it? Do you know what? Does it live out its life in retirement? I'm back now. Yes, Mrs. Salmon, it's good to be back in our old home. Let's retire here. No, they die. They die. I think that's a fitting illustration for us. Going back to that old life only promises ruin and destruction. 
Why would you ever want to return there? That old you should repulse you. It should motivate you to flee. I don't want to go back there. Believe me, I don't want to go back to where I used to be. And that's the core message of verses 17 to 19. To walk in holiness means to reject who you were. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 20 to 24 to say, not only are you to reject who you were, if you're a believer, you need to remember who you are. What keeps you going back up that stream is to remind yourself, you're like that salmon who when he was going downstream, he was changed so that he could live and function and survive in the Pacific. That's what happens to the believer that we're transformed, we're different. We're not made to live in the rivers anymore. Look at verse 20. He says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Paul gives here a forceful contrast. All we see there in the text is the word but. But actually, hidden in there in the Greek is actually he repeats the second person pronoun you. He also adds another conjunction, so, along with but, to give this forceful but you, Christian, not so for you. That's not the way you learned Christ. Pagan life is not for you. And that phrase there, the way you learned Christ, he doesn't say the way you learned of Christ or about Christ, but learned Christ. It's a unique phrase, not found anywhere else in the New Testament or in pre-biblical Greek, to learn a person. I think what Paul is doing here is to focus on the fact that Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. It's about a connection to Him. Not simply a, a list of facts or religious liturgy to follow, but it is a relationship. It's to know and follow and understand Jesus Christ. And he says here in verse 20, the answer to dealing with sin, the answer to our struggles is in Jesus. It always comes back to him. It always comes back to that Sunday school answer. What's that song that... That we sing, um, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. You know that one? He's the only way. You see, when our attention and our focus and our energy and our efforts and our passion are placed toward learning him, toward understanding him, toward knowing him, that's when we're moved to walk in holiness. I love what Acts 4.13 said. As Peter and John were proclaiming uh, the good news, that it says that, The people there noticed and saw them, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. What a neat description. That being with Christ had so affected them that people could see visibly, these guys are different. They've been with Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says that to run the race of the Christian life with endurance, that happens by fixing our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in Christ and Christ alone that that you can conquer lust and addiction and anger and bitterness and pride and selfishness, gossip. Dealing with our sin, it begins with Christ. As Ephesians 4.20 says, to, to learn Christ, to have our eyes fixed on Him, to be conformed to His image. And Paul's emphatic here in verse 20 because he's making a point that the true follower of Christ, the one who learned Christ... That life is totally counter to what you used to be as a pagan. Totally different. Totally opposite to what you were without Christ. 
And I think Paul goes into gruesome details here and all this detailed description of what life was like as an unbeliever because he wants to get our attention and say, you're different now. You've changed. You've been transformed. You're not that way anymore. Jesus has delivered you from that. And Paul reiterates that point in verses 22 to 24. He gives detail in those next three verses about what they'd been taught in Christ. And these three verses are critical. These three verses are key. They are the key to knowing how to walk in holiness. They're the key to knowing how to battle sin, how to deal with temptation. They are critical to know so that we can live for Christ. So many Christians, they live their lives at the beginning of verse 17. They live their lives in this ongoing battle with with sin and trying to avoid temptation and putting up all these barriers of defense, trying to stop doing what they used to do. And it's like going out in a battle with just a shield. It's helpful, but you need a weapon. And the weapon and the sword that Paul gives us is what he tells us in verses 22 to 24. It's not just rejecting who you were, but it's remembering who you are. If we look at the truths contained in these three verses, they are the very weapon we need to help us walk in holiness. Look again at verse 22. It says, You were taught... Three things, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And two, to to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And and three, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. Here Paul gives three parallel statements that explain how what we were taught in Christ. Uh, three statements that are introduced by what are called infinitives, verbal nouns. In English, we have that word T-O in front of them, to know, to, to be, to, uh, to make, to, to follow. And these infinitives here that he gives, the first and third one are put off and put on. They're clothing terms. He's talking about putting off the old man, like taking off that old sweat, sweater that your wife keeps telling you to get rid of and put on a new Armani sport coat. It's this idea of the old man or your old nature, the old you that was enslaved to sin. The one that Paul describes here as being corrupt, corrupted by deceitful lust, enticing desires. Again, that that promise and woo you happiness and joy and pleasure. But they are deceitful lusts which corrupt and ruin your soul. By contrast, he says, put on the new man, the Armani coat, the one who is transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we know this first. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. The old things have passed away and the new have come. The new man's been freed from that deceitful lust. Verse 24 says that the new man has been recreated, reborn in Christ, in God, as God's child. If you're a Christian, you're no longer the old guy. You're no longer the old man, but the new. You're totally different. Now, some look at these three verses and they say that these three things Paul is giving here are imperatives. That Paul's commanding us, hey, put off the old man and put on the new. But neither the grammar nor theological understanding of the old man uh, supports this. As I noted earlier, these are infinitives. They're not imperatives. They're completing the thought of the main verb. The main verb is to be taught. So Paul's saying you were taught to put off, to put on, to be renewed. 
If he intended to have them as commands, he would have written them in the imperative in the Greek, like he does in verses 25 and on. There are many commands that Paul gives there about lying and stealing and anger and and bitterness and all these things. He puts those in command form. But here in verses 22 to 24, he does not. And the other thing I want you to notice here is that the reason they aren't commands is the in the Greek tense. And I want to try to hopefully you can see this. There's our three phrases to put off your old self, to put on the new and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And there's something very interesting about the first and third statements there, the put off and the put on. They are in what's called the aorist tense. That tense is describing the action as a whole and usually refers to a completed action. But notice, Paul did not put all three of these in that same tense. The middle to be renewed is in the present tense. He's drawing a contrast here. What he's saying is that you were taught, when you came to Christ, at that moment you were taught to put off the old man. That's repentance. And you were taught to put on the new man. That is the faith and trust in Christ. Those things have happened. They're already done. He's not commanding us to keep dealing with the old man. The old man is gone. He's been taken off. The old sweater's been thrown in the trash. We've put on the new coat. Those happened in the past at conversion. And we can see that too, that the past is is what should be the case because of the statement that he makes in verse 22, that the old man was your former manner of life. That is the old you. That's why it's called old. Old means old. It's different. It's done. This fact is emphasized again, but if you notice that middle statement, to be renewed in the present tense, that's the only thing that's ongoing right now. All three of these things were things that had been taught to them by Paul and others in the past. Look at Colossians 3 for a minute to hopefully this might give a little more clarity and support what we're talking about here. Paul's addressing the exact same topic as he does here in Ephesians 4. Colossians 3 beginning in verse 9, where there he gives a specific command to obey and then gives the reason or the foundation or the motivation to obeying that command. Paul says there in Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside, Arist, the old self with its evil practices, and have put on, Arist, the new self, which is being renewed, present, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. These verses sound kind of familiar, don't they? Same exact idea as Paul's been talking about here in Ephesians 4. And notice here that laid aside or put off and put on are again both in the heiress. They're both past events. And that to be renewed here again, being renewed is in the present. They're not to lie to each other because that's the old them. That's the old man that was put off at salvation. Remember Romans 6 talks about this. What happened to your old man, by the way? When you took off that sweater, if you will, what happened to that old guy? He's dead, right? Paul talked about that in Romans 6, verse 3. I'll read it to you. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified, was 
crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer be slaves to sin. Paul's talking there past tense about our old self. That you can picture the old man. What happened to your old man at salvation? What happened to him or her? He died, right? He was crucified. You can picture him, as Paul says here, to being put on the cross. That old you was died, a new you was born. A new you, just like Jesus came out of the grave with a new body, you came out of the spiritual grave with a new heart. Amen. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Right? This is a past event. This is already done. We don't need to keep dealing with the old man. He's dead. You don't re-kill a corpse. It's already gone. When Jesus hung upon that cross, in a very real way, you hung there too. If you're saved, if your old man hung there and died, that old nature that was enslaved to sin, that old man now is lying in a coffin, cold, dead. You put off the old man when you repented. You put on the new when you trusted Christ. But Tim, if I, if I am new, if I'm, if I'm different, then... Why does Paul have to command me to not live like the old self? If the old man's dead, why do I want to try to be the old man again? Why does he talk about not walking as I used to walk? If I'm new and different, why do I feel like the old me sometimes? Well, we need to understand what the new man is. I think we often get the new man confused with the glorified man. Let me illustrate this, hopefully, for you. Okay, I've got... I've got these clay pots. Actually, they're plastic, but work with me on this, all right? This is a clay pot. This is the old man. It's full of cement. Actually, Play-Doh, but again, work with me. So the old man, this old clay pot, is full of cement. Nothing can penetrate it. It's hard. It's unpenetrable. You can't put water or anything else in here. That's the old you. But what happens at salvation to this old man? Hard heart's gone. Now, I was going to put water in here, but there are holes in it, and I'd get in trouble. So just pretend there's water in here, all right? The old you's gone. That hardened cement heart is out of there and filled with water. But the thing of it is, the new man still has some cement residue. There's still some of the flesh and sinful desires that are there. You're not this guy anymore. You're not incapable of having a, a new heart or having anything penetrate like you used to be. You have a a new heart now. You're changed. You're different. But the reason sometimes it doesn't feel that way is there's still some of that cement residue that have to be dealt with. And God in His mercy has provided a filtration process. That's the the being renewed part that filters out the water and, and tries to deal with that cement residue and clean it out so that someday, either when you die or the second coming, you'll be the glorified man. Perfect crystal bowl with perfectly clean and pure water inside you're not this guy anymore you're this guy and someday this one so right now we're not here yet we're not perfect yet we're in this state different god's not we're not enslaved to sin anymore our heart isn't as hard as stone anymore and we're progressing to this one but we're still not there yet and god's wisdom He has determined that he wants us to live in this state for a time, to deal with the struggles of sin and temptation, to go through the sanctification process, 
He has his purpose and his reasons and in his wisdom has determined this is the best way to conform us to the image of Christ, which is this someday. So it feels like the old man a little bit because we have some of that residue. Ed's going to talk about next week uh, the flesh and, and some of those things. But brothers and sisters, don't miss the magnitude of this truth. To successfully battle our sin and to walk in holiness, you have to realize you're different. You're not this guy anymore. You're changed. And this probably sounds familiar because Paul keeps going back here in this letter to say you are new, you are different, you're changed. The old you is gone, gone, finished, dead, no more. If I could, I'd chuck this. But I don't know if we're insured. (laughs) Pastor hitting person with pot full of Play-Doh. Right? But you're God's child now. You're redeemed. You're new. And we can't, we have to often remind ourselves of this. How often do you remind yourself of that? That's why I wanted to give you this little illustration. So maybe this will stick in your mind that you're changed and you're different. And you can remember what God has done in you. I read this quote a few months ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but it bears repeating. We're no longer what we were. And the first thing we have to do is to tell ourselves just that. The whole art of Christian living is to talk to yourself. If you do not preach to yourself, you are not a Christian. A Christian is a preacher. He preaches to himself. You start your day by telling yourself, Now I am the new man. I'm no longer the old man. My old man's been crucified with Christ. My old man is dead, finished He's non-existent. I'm no longer what I was. You start the new day by saying that to yourself. It will not be said to you. It will not automatically happen to you. You're a new creature. So live like it. And again, God has chosen not to get us here yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Our relationship, we still sin, but our relationship to that sin is radically changed. We're no longer chained to it. Now we can find freedom from it. And Paul describes how that happened. And we'll close with this point in verse 23. That happens through the renewing of the spirit of your mind, he says in verse 23. To be renewed here means to be made new or or different. But if we're new creatures, why do we need to be made new? What's that talking about? Well, here the idea of being renewed isn't in the sense of transforming, but the sense of refreshing. Because we battle sin, we battle temptation, we are in the world, and we require that cleansing, that refreshing, that filtration. Like the filter, or the cement, the cement particles that are in our clay pots. And the verb here for renewing is in the present tense, as I said. That means it's not a one-time deal, it's a continual process. And notice, too, that it says to be renewed. I'm not the one doing the renewing, it's being done to me. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in my life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes the believer as being transformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit. But how does the Spirit do that? How does this renewing take place? Is it something that, since it's passive, or we just kind of sit there and as we fall asleep, you know, that God does things in our sleep? Is it random? I mean, how does this renewing take place? Well, notice verse 23 says that it happens in the spirit of our mind. This unique phrase, spirit of our mind, is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's, it's really a colloquialism. 
It's describing uh, the core of your thinking, the very center and essence of your mind. It's like that, you know that expression, in, in your heart of hearts, right? It's not like your heart has a heart inside of it. What's it talking about there? It's just the core of you, who you really are at the core of your being. Well, that's the idea here, at the core of your thinking. That's where the renewing takes place. Paul's drawing attention to the thinking component of our heart, the, the learning part, the cognitive function, the, the reasoning faculties. I mean, as you look at these verses, did you see how many times, how many terms Paul uses to talk about the mind and the intellect? Verse 17, the futility of their mind. Verse 18, darkened in their understanding. Verse 18, again, because of the ignorance that is in them. Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Verse 21, you have been taught in him. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's an important principle here, a crucial one that we've got to understand if we're to understand how this renewing takes place. It is your thinking which is the key. The mind is the portal to the soul. What you choose to think about, what you understand, this is what drives what you do. How, how did Satan tempt Eve? What did he do? Deceived her, right? How? He attacked her thinking, right? He attacked her thinking. How she thought about God, what he was doing, the situation. He got her through her understanding. Genesis 6, 5, before destroying the earth, says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, battling sin begins by correcting wrong thinking to engage the mind with truth. That's why in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul spent so much time on truth. He spent so much time addressing doctrine and addressing the, the mind and the thoughts and our understanding about who God is, about what he has done in salvation, about who we are and our fellowship with him and with one another. Right? Those first three chapters, there's only one command. And that's a command to remember, to use our mind. Paul's trying to make a point here that the doctrine is a foundation for our behavior. Yet many churches today, they focus on moving the emotions. That good worship is thought to be, have been achieved when you have that euphoric feeling, when it's realized, when your heart's been stirred. And don't misunderstand me. I like my heart to be stirred. I like to experience the emotion and, and joy in knowing the Lord. I, I love... Music, I, I like drums. I'm sorry if you don't. I, I like the drums. But these are merely instruments to facilitate what's being put on the screen. That is what should be moving us, ultimately. I was singing this morning one of the songs that talked about Christ's blood being shed for me. And it, it hit me, it struck me, that truth. And my emotions were moved by that. Not by the tune and the melody. Though that's important. And God is honored when we are excellent in every fashion. And we have the music to accompany that. But, but that isn't, you know, happiness is a good thing. But, but the issue is, how do we get there? How do we get there? We get there through the mind, through a right understanding about God. You know, the cry today is, too much content, not enough emotion. But the need of the hour is content. It is understanding, right understanding. We desperately need the spirit of our minds to be renewed. That is the process of sanctification. Our understanding being changed or being reminded of. Truth, doctrine, teaching from the word. This is how we grow. 
This is how we experience true and lasting joy. This is how we battle sin. We cannot have a situation or a false notion that doctrine and practice are two separate things. If anything, we learn from the book of Ephesians. They're completely interconnected. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have doctrine by itself because its purpose is to drive practice. But you cannot just have practice alone either. Right? What is it that sets us free? The truth, right? It's the truth that sets you free. Not an experience. Christianity is cognitive before it's experiential. Martin Lloyd-Jones also said this, If any one of us is failing at any point in conduct and behavior, it is because we have not understood the doctrine. The biggest failures I know in the Christian life are the people who decry doctrine and say, I'm a practical man. I'm not interested in your theology. Practice is everything with me. They, of all people, are the ones who fail most of all as they must because conduct is determined by doctrine and understanding. And that's why Paul keeps going back to this truth of reminding us who we are in Christ. That truth and that truth alone is a basis for us to motivate us to walk in holiness, to to know who we are and to continually tell ourselves that. In fact, if you look the very next verse in verse 25, what's the first word there in chapter 4 of Ephesians? Therefore, right? Paul's saying, I'm giving you this truth. I'm reminding you of who you are in Christ because that is the foundation and the basis for these many commands that I'm going to give you about, about lying and about bitterness and about stealing and anger and all these things. We're going to get a slug of commands here in a minute. But he's saying the basis and the motivation, the ability to carry those commands out is based on who you see yourself as. To reject who you were, to remember who you are. That is the path to sanctification. That is the path to holiness. Engage your mind with those truths. Let's pray. Lord, we can't hear this message enough, Lord, to remember who we are in Christ. Remember what you have done, that our old man, our old person, our old soul, if you will, or the way we used to be was crucified, not because we're anything great, but because of your kindness and mercy. Lord, I pray that if any are here that are still blinded, Lord, that you would open their eyes, help them to see the truth of your gospel, the goodness of your Son, Lord, and the the wickedness of their own sin against you. And Lord, that they would not suffer in hell, but would, Lord, place their trust in you. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us here who know you, God, to remind ourselves constantly of who we are. Lord, to remember and understand what you've done in our lives so that we could be pleasing in your sight in all ways. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember a few months ago, I um, gave you a homework assignment. I said to write down Romans uh, 6, verses 6 and 7, or uh, some verses from Ephesians that remind you of who you are. Well, now's your chance. If you didn't do that, if you're still in sin, you have an opportunity this week to correct that. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment again, is to write that down, who you are in Christ, and put it next to your bedside. Put it in your purse, in your wallet, your pocket, so that you can, as a mechanism, remind yourself who you are in Jesus. All right? So do that. Follow the advice and the words of Paul here, and you will find yourself having a better weapon in your battle against sin.
So with that, have a blessed Sunday and a blessed week.